Revelation chapter 15, after considering God's judgment, God's judgment in Revelation 14, remember that's what Revelation 14 was essentially about. It was a chapter that described God's wrath and God's judgment that was going to come upon the enemies of his people at this time. We've made the case that it's very likely it could have been the Roman Empire, at least that's where, that's where I stand on that. After reading a chapter about God's judgment upon the empire, here in this chapter, Revelation 15, we find an, encour an encouraging scene, at least at the beginning of the chapter. We find a scene where God is taking the time to offer some comfort and some encouragement to his people. He wants his people to know that ultimately they're going to be fine after he exercises his wrath and his judgment upon the enemies of his kingdom. And so we saw in Revelation 15, as we looked at verse number one, we saw how that chapter, as that chapter opens up, the wrath of God is described. It is described as seven. Remember, the number seven is very significant in the book. It's a number of completeness, a number of perfection, and God's wrath here is described, at least in the beginning of this chapter, as seven plagues. Seven plagues. God has often brought plagues upon people. Here the language is being used, obviously, symbolically. symbolically but we have seen in our Bibles when God literally brought plagues upon people. And the most obvious example of that is what? Egypt. Egypt. We've talked about that. These seven plagues here are called the last. Why are they called the last? Yes, this is the end. This is the end of God's wrath. This is the end of God's judgment. This is his full anger and judgment upon the empire. In fact, the text says that in these seven plagues, the wrath of God is what? Finished. This is it. Now, you look at verse 2, as we looked at, God's people are declared, and the point we made there is they are declared as victorious. You have the victorious church. You have the people of God, the church, being described as victorious over the beast and his image. And remember, we, we've made the point that the beast and his image represent the henchmen of Satan at this time. We have the corrupt empire and the emperor worship system. The people of God will ultimately be victorious over these enemies. They are holding harps of God and they are standing on a sea of glass. They are also singing a song of victory. They're singing a song of victory. The song, as we looked at on Sunday, is described first as the song of Moses. Where did we say the song of Moses was found in our Bibles? Where did we find the song of Moses? Exodus 15. There's another spot, too. You remember it? Yeah. So we got Exodus 15. We got Deuteronomy 32. This was a song that meant a lot, not just to the people of God in the days of Moses, but it meant a lot to the, to the Jewish people all the way up to the destruction of the temple. The song of Moses a song of victory, a song where many historians say they sung on the Sabbath day, the Sabbath day at the temple. So this was a song of victory of God's people under the old covenant. 
they sang this song initially in Exodus 15 after God had delivered them from bondage, Egyptian bondage, and brought them safely across, you ready for this, the sea, the, the Red Sea. Once they came across the Red Sea, they sang the song of Moses, a song of victory, a song where they praised God for building them into a nation even though they were slaves. And he nurtured them and he delivered them ultimately from their enemies. And so you have this Old Testament imagery here being used when talking about the song of Moses. But then not only here is the song of victory called the song of Moses. And keep in mind, this is the aftermath. This scene is the aftermath of God's judgment on the empire. So we're kind of going, you know, going pressing forward in time, but then we're going to come back in time, if that makes sense, okay? So, so this is the aftermath. And there's the song of victory being sung. And it's called the song of Moses, but also the song of the Lamb. And that's even more significant. This is a song of victory now for God's people under the new covenant. God has led his people to victory over their enemies now, but not just victory over an empire, but the main victory we get as Christians is the victory over what? It's a three-letter word. Sin, right. Satan is obviously tied to that, but ultimately we're talking about sin. And that's Paul's main point in much of his writings, uh, especially in the book of Romans, of how sin there in Romans is described as a master, a slave master. And we're only able to be delivered from that bondage through the Lamb, through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of what Moses was under the Old Covenant. Moses was a type of Christ in that he did deliver God's people from a bondage, but Jesus would come later and he would be a greater prophet, a greater deliverer, and he would deliver God's people from the slave master of sin. And so once we understand that, now we can make some good application. Now we can understand that while we're not being oppressed by the Roman Empire today, we still can sing the song of the Lamb we still will sing the song of the Lamb in heaven because we're all going to celebrate being delivered by the Lamb from sin. And that's the most important deliverance that we could ever enjoy and that we could ever experience. And so we sing a song of victory as God's people today, just like those Christians 2,000 years ago, the song of the Lamb. Now, let's say some more things here about where we were in these verses right here. Let me say a few things about this and I'll give you a moment or two to make some comments on some things that may stand out to you, okay? Remember we pointed out how in this song, God is praised for many of his attributes. So he's praised for being great and glory and marvelous, glorious, marvelous are his works. The fact that God can create a special people unto himself and deliver them from the bondage of sin through his son, which is the lamb. We also see there in that text where God is emphasized as the Lord Almighty, how he's even mightier 
than the great and powerful Roman Empire, how he is just and true in all his ways, how he's even right in this great judgment that he's about to execute at this time because he had given these people plenty of time to repent and they refused to repent. God's always right when he executes his justice and how he's a king, but he's ultimately the king of the saints. He's a king of his people. He's the king of his church. And that's something that we always need to think about, how God has authority over us. He has the right to tell us what to do. And if he's truly our king, we will submit to what he has said. We also see how God is to be feared. He's a God who is to be feared. Let me go back there. I'm sorry. He's a God who should be feared as the Lord. We made a point how a lot of people today don't fear God. And the ultimate way we show that we fear God is when we do what? Obey him. That, that's the ultimate test to, to true fear of God. And the people at this time especially did not fear God, but that's why they're involved in paganism. That's what's going on there. He needs to be glorified, not the Roman emperor, not, not some man or some false god, but God is the one who deserves the glory. And he's holy. He's a holy God. He's, he's a holy God even during a time 2,000 years ago when people were involved in idolatry and all kinds of sexual immorality, God was still holy. He's holy at the highest level. He's completely set apart from sin. That's still true today. Now let's talk a little bit about this part here. Let's talk a little bit about this part where it says, for all nations shall come and worship before you. Keep in mind that this is being said after the, the victory, that God is worthy of all nations coming before him. I want to say some things about this text. The first thing I want to say is when the text says there are all nations, all nations, we're talking about physical nations here. When the text says all nations, it means just that. It means all, all nations. It means Jews and it means Gentiles. We're all Gentiles. We're not Jewish. We're Gentiles. And so God is worthy of all of our praise and worship. He's worthy of the Jews' worship. He's worthy of the Gentiles' worship. He is worthy of all the people in the empire's worship. Remember, who are they worshiping at this time much of the empire? The Domitian, yeah, the emperor. They're calling him Caesar and Lord. And yet only God is worthy of that. Only God is worthy to be worshipped by an empire, by all the nations, which would include the whole empire. Now, there are a few things I think we need to highlight here about this part. This part here, and listen carefully, this part where it talks about all nations worshipping God. This has been part of God's plan from the beginning. This has always been part of God's plan. This is not something that just popped up onto the scene later on. It has been God's will from the beginning, that all people have a relationship with him, that all people bow down and worship him. And secondly, this is something that the Jews refuse to accept. You understand that, don't you? You understand that one of the main problems the Jews had was the fact they did not want to accept Gentiles also being part of God's family. And they still struggle with that those who at least call themselves Jews to this day. You understand that, don't you? The Jews struggled with this. They struggled with the fact that it was God's will that there come a time through the Lamb when Gentiles would be on their same level. 
We, you see this throughout the Bible. You see this throughout the Old Testament. You see it in Jesus' ministry. You see it in Luke chapter 4, when after Jesus goes into the synagogue and he preaches about how God blessed Gentiles in the time of Elisha, in the time of Elijah and Elisha. Sometimes I get them mixed up there. But in that time, God was blessing Gentiles. He was blessing people like Naaman. He was blessing Gentile people in, in, who were, had diseases, had leprosy, and he wouldn't pour those blessings out on Jews. Jesus preached that. He preached about God blessing Gentiles. And you know what they wanted to do to him in Nazareth, his hometown, when he preached that in Luke 4? They was going to throw him off a cliff. And through the providence of God, he got out of that. But they were going to kill him before his time because he preached about God's blessings on Gentiles. That's what Luke 4 is about. But Jesus, as he taught that, he was quoting from the prophets. He was quoting from Isaiah. And Isaiah talked about that. In fact, in Isaiah 2, Isaiah talked about a time when all the nations would come to the, to the house or the mountain of God. This is all through the Old Testament. It's found in the book of Amos. It's found all over the place. The apostle Paul, why do you think many of the Jews hated Paul? Because he had a special ministry to who? To the Gentiles. He, God picked him to go to the Gentiles. And the Jews couldn't stand that about Paul. And many of the Jewish Christians did not like that about Paul. In fact, if you remember when Peter got back from the household of Cornelius, many of the Jewish Christians gave him a, gave him a hard time because they found out he went and ate and spent time with Gentiles and preached the Gentiles. They did not like that. And so I want you to go to John chapter 4. And I want to show you something here in John chapter 4. In John 4, and, and you may want to get familiar with this story because this is going to come back up on Sunday in one of our lessons. We want to talk a little bit about this woman here, this Samaritan woman. Remember, Jews couldn't stand Samaritans. They viewed, they viewed them as half-blooded half heathens. They were half-Jewish and, and half-Gentile. That goes back to the Babylonian captivity. But in John chapter 4, if you remember, Jesus sparks this conversation up with this Samaritan woman he encounters as, at a well as he's interestingly and radically traveling through Samaria. Jews didn't do that in the time of Jesus, but Jesus does it because he came to save all people. And they have this interesting conversation. You know, after the conversation starts up by talking about water, Jesus and this woman eventually start talking about her personal business and how Jesus knew that she had been married a bunch of times before and she was currently not living with a man who wasn't her husband. But then in verse 19, they start talking about worship. Isn't what this is this talking about worship here? So they start talking about worship. And she says, sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Verse 19, our fathers, this is the forefathers of the Samaritans, worshiped in this mountain. Does anybody know what the this mountain is? This is Mount Gerizim. That's where the Samaritans had their temple at Mount Gerizim. So she says our people worshiped over there at Mount Gerizim. But you people, you Jews, you say that Jerusalem, that mountain, is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain, Mount Gerizim, or Jerusalem, that mountain, 
neither here or there will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth for such people. The father seeks to be his worshipers. Let's say something about this. This woman wants to know where is the right place to worship God. She's talking about location. Where is the right place to worship God? Jesus responds to her by saying, because she wants to know, do the Samaritans have it right or do the Jews have it right? Is Mount Gerizim the right place or is the Temple Mount in Jerusalem the right place? Jesus says, here's the answer. The answer now is the Jews have it right. You have it wrong. The Samaritans have it wrong. It's not Mount Gerizim. You worship what you don't know. You Samaritans are wrong religiously. The Jews got it right. Why do they have it right? Because they're God's people at this time. They have the law. They're worshiping at the temple. That's where God wanted to be worshipped. So Jesus says it mattered at this time where you worshipped. It had to be at Mount, at the Mount where the temple was. But he says there's coming a time when location won't matter anymore. It's not going to matter if it's in Jerusalem or Mount Gerizim. And aren't you glad of that? that we, especially when we live in America, they didn't matter anymore. It doesn't matter about location anymore. Because it's going to come a time when God could be worshipped anywhere. Because he's a spirit and he's looking for true worshipers. So what Jesus accomplished through his work at Calvary was obviously our redemption. But he made it so that God's people now can be in his presence, God's presence anywhere. Even right now here in Phoenix, Arizona. Right now. We're not in Jerusalem. But guess what? God's presence is still with us because we're the temple now. That makes sense. And so at this point, the Jews are God's people. But under the new covenant, things are going to change. And all people will be brought into fellowship with God, will be able to be brought into fellowship with God. They're going to become God's people, and it won't matter where they worship anymore. As long as they do it, how? According to verse 24, in spirit and truth. That's what it's all about. And so the point I'm just trying to make is this. Worship is important. We're going to talk more about worship on Sunday in one of the lessons. Worship is important to God and God wants all people to worship him. That's one of the things that Jesus accomplished to make that. He made that possible. But we got to do it right. And we got to do it in reverence and to the glory of God. And that's what the song emphasizes. So let's let me pause right there. I know I said a lot. There's a lot to the kind of process there. But does anybody have any comments, anything you want to say about where we're at so far? Go ahead, Brother Don. Just a question. Uh, are you going to include the last three verses in Isaiah? The answer to that is probably no. <laughs> no. My time, my time is limited, Brother Don. <laughs> but go ahead. I'm sorry. What, which chapter are we are? I didn't mean to cut you off, sir. Chapter 66. Chapter six, the last chapter, okay. Yes. That's Isaiah 66. The last three 
the last three verses, 22 through 24. That's a great text there. In fact, Isaiah is one of those great Old Testament prophetic books that really talks about the Messiah. In fact, it's, it's commonly called, you know, the, 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 mess, the Messianic book of the Old Testament. It talks so much about the Messiah and what he was going to accomplish. And one of those things we see as early as Isaiah 2, but also in the last chapter, as through the Messiah, all nations were going to be brought in. And they were going to be able to worship God, just like the Jews, as far as that fellowship goes. And that was going to happen in the kingdom of God under the new covenant. So, so if you're making notes on this, I think that's worthy to write down there. How Isaiah closes with this very point here in Revelation, Isaiah 66. Good point. Now, let me say one more thing here. I just have so much I want to say about this. I was studying, some, you know, as preachers, sometimes we get so much information in our minds that we just don't have enough time to share it all. But I'd rather have that problem to get up here and say all I need to say. We still got 10 minutes left and I got nothing else to say. So I'd rather have more information than too little. The judgments here, the judgments have been manifested. The song concludes for your judgments or this part here says for your judgments have been manifested. I think we got to keep this in the context of, of what has happened. At this time, 2000 years ago, how was God's judgment? How have they been manifested? It's a very simple answer. Don't think too hard on it. God's judgment is against who? That's how they have been manifested. It's that simple. They have been manifested through the enemies they have been, they have been executed against at this time. That's how God's judgment has been manifested. And God's people are praising him because he has avenged them. He has kept the promise he made them back with, the, what was it, the fifth seal? How long, how long? Until you avenge us? God says, just wait. Well, God's people are praising him now because his judgments have been manifested. That's the idea there. Go right ahead, Brother Don. His promise to him as the law is given is I will bring in a nation of stammering tongues. I am going to bring in people that you don't understand their language, you don't understand their ways, and they're going to set on you and bring change. Absolutely. No, absolutely. So does that make sense? What, what's, do you see what's going on here? Are God's being praised here for so many things? In fact, I counted, and I hope I didn't miss this. I'm, I'm not that good at math. But there are 10 things that God is being praised for by his people in these verses. 10 things. That's another big number, isn't it? And let me just say, all these things that are, God is praised for here, they're still true today. They don't change because God is unchangeable. Remember, the Hebrew writer says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and when else? Forever. He's the same. He never changes. So when we get to heaven together, we're going to glorify God for the same reasons. We're going to glorify God because of who he is and because of what he has done for us. This, this never changes. And so let's finish up these last few verses. We're almost done here. Verse 5. Verse 5. Let me advance this. Okay, so we go back to Revelation 15, verse 5. It says, After these things I looked in the temple. Notice the Old Testament imagery here. 
the temple of the tabernacle of testimony in heaven was opened. The thing I want to highlight here to make this simple, okay, is here heaven is opened. Heaven is opened. There is something about to come out from the presence of God. Because that's ultimately what the temple was about. The temple was ultimately about God's people being in God's presence. Okay, that's what it was symbolic for. God's presence among his people. And this is really significant because once we understand that, then we can really appreciate what it means for us to be the temple. And how God's presence is always with us. But here the language is indicating, is using this Old Testament idea to just make the point that where God dwells, something's about to come out from it. Heaven is opened. Because that's where God ultimately is, right? He is in heaven. Jesus said, in my Father's house, there are many dwelling places. Jesus told Mary Magdalene, don't cling to me because I have not yet what? Ascended to my father. So Jesus right now is in the perfect presence of the father sitting at his right hand. And heaven is open and something's coming out from the presence of God. Well, look at verse six. In verse six, we see that the seven angels, these seven angels, remember them? Here they are. They come out. And they have what? The seven what? They got the plagues. And they're clothed in a very radiant way. They are clothed in garments that I believe we can simply summarize as righteous and holy. These are God's angels. These are angels that are clothed in clean and bright clothing. They are holy angels of God. They are mighty angels of God. They are about to execute God's judgment. When you read the 148th Psalm, the 148th Psalm, the psalmist gives a list of all the different things God has made. He talks about the sun and the moon and the stars, and he even mentions the angels, how God created angels. And you know why he created angels? For his glory, to accomplish his will. That's why he created angels, and that's ultimately why he created us, for his glory, to also accomplish his will, to, to be sub, in, in subjection to him, and to submit to him, and to love him, to choose to love him. You know, for those of you who've had children, who have children, I have, I have Janice and I have two children, and I don't know about you, but as a parent, I much prefer my children choosing out of nowhere on a particular day to come and give me a hug and a kiss and just to say, Dad, I love you. I'd rather have that than to have them programmed to say that. You know what I mean? Like, I want to program their robots. I want to program them to tell me they love me every day at this time. That wouldn't mean much to me. Would that mean much to you? There's no emotion into that. But what about if your kids just choose to tell you they love you out of nowhere? when you were not even expecting it. See, that, that's how God is. God wanted to create, he wanted to create a people who would choose to love him. He wants that just like we wanted as parents. In fact, where do we think we got that from? We're made in the image of God, right? So we have here God 
using these created beings, these angels, to execute his will. Now notice in verse 7 how the plagues are now called what? Bowls. These are the same, these are the same seven things. They're just going by different names now. Seven bowls of wrath, seven golden bowls of wrath, right? Now, let me take you back to something here. Do you remember the three series of seven in the book? I'm sorry I don't have the slide for you. I apologize about that, but I hope you remember them. In fact, it's probably good that I don't have them up, because I want to see if you remember them. The three, the three series of seven. The first goes back to chapter, chapter six and uh, I think chapter five and six. The seven what? The seven seals. The seven seals told us the basic story of Revelation. Only Jesus could break the seven seals. And then after that, we eventually came across the seven what else? Trumpets. And the seven trumpets represented warning judgments. God trying to give the empire time to repent. And remember the language of the, of the judgments, a third of this, a third of that, partial judgments. So we got the seven seals, we got the seven trumpets, but now we're at the last series of seven in the book, which is the seven bowls of God's wrath. This is God's complete and final judgment on this particular enemy. Okay? And think about the language, a bowl of wrath. This, this is being described as seven bowls that are full of God's wrath in them. And God is about to pour out his wrath. Do you want to be on the receiving end of a bowl being, being dumped on you that contains God's wrath? I'm reminded of the Hebrew writer. The Hebrew writer said in Hebrews 10, 31, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of who? The living God. You don't want to fall into the hands of the living God. That's what's happening to these people. They're falling into the hands of the living God. And God has given them time to repent. These angels are going to execute God's judgment. His final judgment is on the empire. He's going to do the same thing to them that he did to Babylon. God promised to take down Babylon, didn't he? He did that. In fact, God really did that in one night when you read the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 5. There's other nations in the Old Testament where God promised to bring down. I really like uh, in Ezekiel where God talks about Tyre. I don't know if you remember that, how he was going to bring down the people of Tyre. And they would never be rebuilt again. And God is very detailed on that. And there are other Gentile nations. But it, it wasn't just Gentile nations. The Jews even experienced God's wrath, did they not? They experienced it in part with the Babylonian captivity, Assyrian and Babylonian captivity. But they experienced it completely in 70 AD when God wiped them out as a nation. When God used Rome interestingly enough, to tear down the what? The main thing they needed to be a nation. Temple. The temple. Because the temple contained what? Records, the sacrifice, the things they needed for sacrifices. The records were important so they could have a priesthood. When God tore down the temple through Rome, you know what he was doing? He was doing away with them as a nation. They had lost their identity completely. Even when they came back from Babylon, they still were a nation. They still can have a priesthood and all that stuff. Can't have it now. He God wiped them out for good. And any efforts that may be done in Israel today to rebuild the temple will fail. They will fail because God 
get away with them in 70 A.D. I mean, Jesus was very clear about that. And, and that had to do ultimately with their rejection of Jesus. That's just a fact about it. So look at verse seven again. Look at the last part of verse seven. There is an attribute of God, an attribute of God that is emphasized at the end of verse seven. What, what, what is it? What do you see at the end of verse seven? An attribute of God that is emphasized. He lives forever and ever. He's eternal. He's Alpha and Omega, right? No beginning, no end. He's from everlasting to everlasting, as Moses said in, in, in Psalm 90, in verse 2. That's important because that's showing us, and especially these Christians, that he's not like Rome. He's not like the emperor. They would all end, but God reigns supreme forever, and he will always exist. He has always existed. He will always exist. That's very important. Christians ought to take comfort in the fact that they worship and serve a, an eternal God. He's not like the false gods, the idols. Now, last thing I want to say, then I give you the last couple of minutes. Verse 8. Verse 8, there the scripture says, after, after God talks about emptying out his wrath, the temple was filled. And again, think about this Old Testament imagery here. The temple was filled with smoke. And the smoke is the idea of God's presence there. Smoke from the glory of God. God's glory fills up the room. God's glory fills up the room. The glory of God and his power. And no one was able to enter the temple. No one can come into God's presence and experience God's glory here until what? The plagues are finished. So when I read that, this is what I take from that. You got the glory and power of God filling up the temple. This is showing us that God is about to work. He's about to act. His patience is up. His judgment is about to be unleashed upon these people. And there's nothing that can stop it at this point. There's nothing that can stop it. There's nothing that can prevent God's judgment. God is about to dump it out completely. Time is up. And so as we summarize this, we can say it this way. In this chapter, we find God about to unleash in detail his judgment upon the enemies of his people. We see a vision of God's people standing in victory and the seven bowls of wrath about to be poured out on the Roman Empire. And a thought question is, do you consider yourself as having overcome like these people? And does this chapter motivate you to live right? Because that's what ultimately was designed to motivate these people to do. It was designed to motivate them to stay on the right side of this battle. Stay in the right army because God, he's about to win. And when God wins, guess who else wins? We win. When God wins, we win if we stick with him. And that's really the idea here, because let me tell you something. There's coming another day when time is going to be up. You, you know that, right? When there will be no more time for repentance. There'll be no more preaching of the gospel. There'll be no more time for people to get baptized. When Jesus comes back, that's going to be God's final, final judgment. And time is going to be up also. And we want to be on the right side of that, too, especially because when God exercises judgment on that day, if we're not with him or if we don't die with him, in him or in Christ, we're going to be on the receiving end of that wrath. And we don't want to be on the end of that wrath. 
So we got about a minute or two as people make their way back here. Does anybody, comments, I'll give you the last couple of minutes to make some comments. Brother Tony, go ahead, sir. Absolutely. That was outlined in the, old, in the law, clearly. The Jews had to do it in Jerusalem, at the temple. So, just say, if I live 50 miles away, I have to come in. You got to come to Jerusalem. That's what Pentecost was all about. That's what Pentecost was about. All these Jews that were spread throughout the empire, making their way. When you look at Mary, when Jesus is born, what do we find them doing? They're going, they're making their way to the temple. Look at Hannah. In the days of Sam, when before she had Samuel, she's making her way to the tabernacle. It doesn't matter where you lived. You better make that, you got to make that journey. Uh, when God says to make that journey. So back in Leviticus, when he had a, if you made a sin, he had to bring in a uh, <laughs> first offering, you have to bring it. You better bring it. You got to bring, you got to bring it. And that's, that, that should really make us appreciate what we have now. Because can you imagine if we lived under that now, living here in America, wouldn't that be pretty tough? Getting an animal to Jerusalem. As often as you need it to. It don't matter now. Go ahead, Brother Don. Yes, sir. God says that you will come to the place where I caused my name to be. Yes. And when the tabernacle was in Shiloh, that's where it was. That's where they had to go. And that also explains why for many Jews, when they went to offer sacrifices, they would wait to, when they got to Jerusalem by the animal. Because they didn't want to travel with the animal. And, then, and when you understand that, it helps you understand what Jesus was doing with the money changers. Because he goes in the temple, remember, and they got these animals everywhere. They were, that's people, merchants, taking advantage of the situation. People, most people, they knew most people bought the animal in Jerusalem. So we're going to just set up shop right here. So what about the Orthodox Jews today? I mean, obviously they worship here locally. Anybody, and I'll close with this, anybody who wants to claim they're a Jew today, they got it wrong. Because they can't worship God properly under the, like they did under the Old Covenant. You know why? There's no temple. Without a temple, I don't care who claims to be a Jew, you can't do it the way they did it under the Old Covenant. And God intentionally had that temple destroyed to make that point. It's now about Jesus Christ. It's all about worshiping him in spirit and truth, no matter where you are on the planet. And I'm thankful. I'm thankful for that. Brother Gary, yes, sir. Yes. We are the mountain. Isaiah chapter 2. We are the mountain. And all nations come to the mountain. That's right. Very good, everybody. Oh, that's the, Brother Kevin, real quick. Then we got to close. Go right ahead, sir. Right. Absolutely. Let's stop right there. Thank y'all for y'all's comments. Very good. We'll get ready for the next chapter on Sunday. Thank you.